The following is a presentation of Omega Institute for Holistic Studies, awakening the best in the human spirit. Live out some of these values and with a powerful look within. Something that really came to me in listening, uh, and especially on this day being September 11th, was was a reflection that a, a friend of mine, this woman, Helen Tworkov, made when she was part of a documentary called Faith and Doubt at Ground Zero, which was about people grappling with their own spiritual and religious beliefs following the attacks in the World Trade Center and um, people of various kinds with different relationships with what happened there, and I was just watching the documentary, and um, without my knowing it, my friend Helen popped up on the screen. She was part of it, and, and she said something that moved me tremendously. She said, as I knew, that she had volunteered down there virtually every day. She was down there working, and she said she did, she did that not because of particular spiritual beliefs, she did that almost out of a kind of sense of civic duty, like what it means to be a good citizen. And then she went on to say that the, the reflection or the consideration that she was pondering constantly was, where did the goodness come from? She said the attacks took so much like deliberation and thinking and planning and money laundering and flight school and, <clears throat> you know, it took so much to to do the attacks. And she said it was like the goodness was just there in somebody reaching out to help somebody else or um, risking their own lives for the sake of others or, you know, so much that was a kind of goodness. And she said it seemed to just be there. And that was a very, a very deep consideration for her and became a very deep consideration for me. Like, where does the goodness come from? And from the point of view of, of many spiritual traditions, certainly the Buddhist tradition, goodness is inherent to our being. It's innate. And it's often way hidden. You know, it's, it's covered over, it's obscured, it's confusing, it's uh, something we don't trust. But it's there. It's there, not just for those special people who deserve it, but for everybody. It's part of, of being alive, part of being a human being. And so we do practices like meditation practice based on some of that understanding. It's not a feeling, you know, so much of like, I am like this wretched person and and I need to either disguise that thoroughly or, or somehow through tremendous toil and strain and struggle make some slight improvement in myself. It's not like that at all. It's a very different perception of who we are and what we're capable of and how we can change and how we can grow and what we can grow into. I tell a story in uh, the most recent book I wrote, which is called Faith, about this time that I and some friends were moving into a house on Cape Cod that another friend had rented for us to all do a retreat in. 
And when I went into the room that had been set aside as my bedroom, I saw that someone had left a, a cartoon on the desk. It was from the Peanuts comic strip. And in the first frame of the cartoon, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown, and she says, you know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is, the problem with you is that you're you. And then in the second frame of the cartoon, poor Charlie Brown looks at her and says, well, what in the world can I do about that? Then in the third frame, Lucy looks at him and says, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. <laughs> and thank you, Lucy. <laughs> and somehow, whenever I was walking by that desk, my, yeah, thank you. That's my tea that I was waiting online for and couldn't wait for. Thank you, because the line was so long, so I ran here. <gasps> Somehow, whenever I walked by that desk, my eye would fall on that very line, the problem with you is that you're you. Because that, that Lucy voice had dominated my early life so thoroughly, really defined my sense of who I was and who I could be and... It was almost as though that implication is that if we really knew who we were, it would be an awfully big problem. It was only when I first encountered the uh, Buddhist teaching that something turned around for me, and I saw that Lucy was just a kind of manufactured or conditioned voice, that she wasn't the final word on the nature of things, that there are other ways to tell the story of a life and what a human being could look like and be. You know, for other people, it wouldn't, of course, come in the, in the context of Buddhist teaching at all. It would come in some other way. But for me, that's how my life evolved, so that it was encountering that particular school or, or uh, set of ideas that opened a door for me. In the Buddhist tradition, <clears throat> when they talk about faith, it's very much in this sense. It's not the same as we ordinarily use that word, which could be adopting a dogma or a set of beliefs belonging to somebody else, a, a tradition or a person. It has to do with ourselves stepping off the sidelines right into the center of some sense of possibility. So that, for example, one of the great lines one of my early meditation teachers offered me was, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem, now you solve yours. And it was actually, it sounds, it's hard to describe exactly the tone of voice in which he said that, but it wasn't cutting at all. It was, it was fantastic because it was almost as though it were the first time in my life someone were looking at me with that kind of confidence in me. Like, you can solve your problem. You can solve the problem of the kind of turmoil and unhappiness and confusion that has brought you here to India to begin with. You can solve your problem. So that's, that's very much the, the spirit of meditation practice. It's very self-empowered. It has a quality of faith that doesn't have to do with succumbing to the view of another, but is rather a 
much greater appreciation of everything that we are capable of. And that becomes a universal application. It's not that I, who am so special, am capable of so much, whereas everybody else, you know, needs to be belittled. But we develop a vision of life that is is a true and direct seeing of the kind of interdependence that we've been talking about. We can realize that in truth, no one and nothing stands alone. That when we step off the sidelines and we move to the center of possibility, we learn how to be aware of things that have been hidden from us, that we've been confused about, that we haven't seen clearly. When we see clearly, this is precisely what we see. We see uh, a quality of connection that is absolutely the truth of things. As many of you probably know, I co-founded a retreat center in, in Barry, Massachusetts called the Insight Meditation Society. And when this was 1976. We moved in on Valentine's Day of 1976. And when the center turned 20 years old, we decided to have a party. Now, you can't really have a great party in New England in February and invite people from all over the country, so we waited till the summer. And we did, in fact, have a great party. As part of the celebration, we planted a tree in the garden. We actually have one retreat every year for teenagers, which we call the Young Adults Course. And one of the teenagers planted the tree in the garden. So now you can go into the garden and look at the tree. There's one way of looking at the tree where you just see a tree. It's like a seemingly separate entity just just there. It's just a tree. But there's another way of going into the garden and looking at the tree and sensing everything that is going into making up its existence. The soil which is nurturing it and the actually centuries of people who have stewarded that piece of earth and the the sunlight and the moonlight and the quality of the air and the quality of the rainfall, which is affecting that tree and everything that's affecting the quality of all of those elements, the rain, the air. You can look at the tree and sense the organization that, you know, since 1976 anyway, has been holding that that piece of land and everything that goes into the maintenance of an organization. You can go into the garden and look at the tree and even get a sense of that teenager who planted the tree and everything that must have happened in her life for her to be interested in meditation at such an early age. There's a way of looking at the tree and glimpsing this very big network of connections and influences and relationships and that's also the tree. The tree's not alone. The tree is a part of this much bigger set of conditions. And that's really true. I spent many years in my early meditation practice practicing with teachers who either were from Burma or who had trained in Burma. They'd studied in Burma. 
And then after you know, many years, maybe 18 years, I uh, began practicing much more with teachers who were Tibetan. And one day somebody asked me, well, how did that happen? You know, that, that kind of switch. So I thought about it, and it was complex, of course, you know, when we look back and try to trace all the conditions that bring us to a point in time. And I thought, well, in 1971, somebody showed me a picture of a Tibetan Lama, and I was really taken with his face. I thought, what a beautiful face. And I went off to visit him. So, so that was one part of it. And in 1989, I was at a conference in India with the Dalai Lama, and he asked me a question, which was a painful moment, <laughs> and something happened in that interchange, and that was a part of it. But when I, when I thought about it, one of the most important conditions for that to happen was that I had gone to um, Russia with a friend of mine to lead a course, a meditation course, and we'd arrived on the eve of the coup attempt against Gorbachev. So the course got canceled and we had to leave, and that brought me to Paris at a time I never thought I'd be in Paris, and that's where I met my teacher, my Tibetan teacher. So when I thought about it, I thought, well, could you say that Gorbachev was kind of part of the karmic web of conditions that influenced me to, you know, be practicing with a Tibetan teacher? Well, maybe. You know, sometimes I think if we really could see, we would see such a big world, you know, of, of so much connection, where it's so ironic how alone we feel, you know, and cut off and separate. But that's like confusion or delusion. So the, the belief is, or, or the faith is, that... What we need to do is not convince ourselves of anything or talk ourselves into anything or pretend anything. What we need to do is really see more clearly because the truth will actually open us to how connected we all are and things will be very different. I often teach a practice, um, as I did yesterday all day, of loving-kindness meditation where we are specifically cultivating a sense of friendship or care or connection to ourselves and, and to other beings. I think of it sometimes, I describe it sometimes as, as recognition. Once I was, I was teaching in Barry, I was teaching at the retreat center, and I was asleep at night and having a dream. In the course of the dream, what I was dreaming was that I was teaching a course in Barry, which wasn't the exciting part of the dream. But in the course of the dream, I was having a conversation with someone, and, and they said to me in the dream, why do we love people? And I heard myself say in the dream, because they recognize us. And then I woke up, and I thought, that's pretty good. <laughs> You know, we have such a craving for that, to be seen, to be recognized, and everybody does. You know, to be valued in that way, we all do. So I think of the practice of loving kindness very much in that sense, learning how to harness our awareness, to be able to recognize something about ourselves, 
underneath our fears and anxieties and habits of mind, and something about our place with one another in this world, this true sense of, of interdependence or, or interconnection. And what strikes me always is how it is based on a kind of clear seeing. It's based on wisdom. It's not based on wishful thinking or, or any kind of self-righteous projection of ourselves as, you know, as like a spiritual person or a loving person. I think often of this story that a, a friend of mine, a colleague of mine named Sylvia Borstein told me where she said, she was teaching with us in uh, Barry one year, and then she was flying home to San Francisco, and her plane stopped in Chicago, and then took off again to go to San Francisco. And she said about 45 minutes into that second flight, the pilot got on the PA system, and he said, now there's really nothing to worry about, but we've developed a little problem with the hydraulic system of the plane. And rather than fly over the Rocky Mountains without a fully functioning hydraulic system, we're just going to turn back. And he said, now there's really nothing to worry about, and the flight attendants will now instruct you in the position to take in the event of an emergency landing, and they're going to go around collecting all of your shoes and all of your eyeglasses and all of the pens out of your pockets which I never understood until a flight attendant told me that that's what you do in case someone has to go down an emergency chute so that nothing like breaks or, you know, tears the chute. So they did that, and there was Sylvia sitting without any shoes and without her glasses, and she decided to do loving-kindness meditation, which is done through the silent repetition of certain phrases like, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, something like that. She decided to do loving-kindness meditation for those she is closest to in this life. It was her husband, her children, their partners, and her grandchildren. And when she would get to her youngest grandchild, she would begin again with her husband and just keep going down the list, wishing them you know, to be happy, to be well, to be safe, to be peaceful. Now, Sylvia also said, for some reason, the pilot would get back on the PA system every five minutes, and he would say, we're going to be landing in 35 minutes, we're going to be landing in 30 minutes, we're going to be landing in 25 minutes, and every time he did that, she would just go back to doing the loving-kindness meditation just the way she had been toward these people she was closest to in this life. And then the pilot got on and said, we're going to be landing in five minutes. At which point Sylvia thought, well, in five minutes, I'll either be dead or I'll still be alive. And at that point, what she discovered was that she actually could not limit that kind of well-wishing, that beneficence just to those people she'd been closest to. The only way she could do the loving-kindness meditation was toward all beings everywhere, without limit, without distinction, without exclusion, without exception. So she said she did that for five minutes. Then the plane landed. It was a landing, just like any other landing. And they fixed whatever was wrong, and then they took off again. So I love that story because I love the sense of that moment when she just couldn't. 
because there's nothing artificial there. There's nothing phony. There's nothing kind of presumptuous about it. You know, it's not like she was sitting there thinking, well, you know, I might die in five minutes and I don't really feel like offering loving kindness to all beings everywhere, but you know, it wouldn't be very seemly if anybody ever found out, you know, that I spent the last five minutes of my life just wishing well for my husband and my children and grandchildren. So I don't really want to, but I better force myself, you know, to somehow do this. She just couldn't. And so I, I think about that moment and what that moment is for us in our lives when we hear the Lucy voice and we just can't believe it anymore. We can't follow it anymore. Or we feel that kind of erection of a barrier, a self, an other, the great other out there, and we just can't buy into it. Or we realize we might die in five minutes and we can't quite hold the grudge that we had been nursing very assiduously up until that moment. Because there's such purity in, in those times when we just can't anymore. Not because we are making ourselves or, or trying to pretend anything, but because we see so much more clearly. So even though the very same old habits arise, we can let them go. And that really is, is both the, the power and the essence of meditation practice. We can see things as they are. The very same things may arise. We can let them go. We have a, a kind of freedom and a quality of freedom to be a much better person and have a much truer relationship to the world around us, which affects everybody. So would you like to do some? Okay. Um, we, can, uh, we can actually do some of um, both a simple breath exercise of uh, mindfulness and just kind of coming into our our being, letting go of distractions. And then I'll close with a little bit of loving-kindness practice as we do that. So it's helpful if you can sit comfortably. These chairs are pretty good, actually. I've sat on so many such chairs in my life. In fact, not too long ago in April, I spent 11 days... Um, at a teaching the Dalai Lama was doing in Toronto, which I would have to say are the, were the, the most uncomfortable chairs I'd ever sat in my entire life. And they were all hooked together. So it was one of those situations where like if someone in the row moved, everyone had to move, you know. And I was sitting next to a friend of mine named Krishnadas, whom you might know, who does Hindu devotional chanting. And so our chairs were hooked together. And one day he tapped me on the shoulder and I looked over and I realized he'd unhooked his chair and moved it like, you know, inches away. And he said to me, unhook your chair. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wow, there's freedom here. <laughs> you know, why were we all just doing that? But these chairs are pretty good. So. so sit comfortably. See if you can have your back erect without being strained or overarched.
and close your eyes unless you're accustomed to meditating with your eyes open. If you start getting really sleepy, which has been quite known to happen, then it's fine to open your eyes and you can continue on. If your eyes are open, you don't really want to be gazing around, taking a a tremendous interest in what everyone else is doing. But just find a spot ahead of you and rest your gaze there and then let it go. And sometimes we begin with a very simple listening to sound. Sound of my voice, the other sounds that are coming through the wall. Any other external sounds or internal sounds. Because it's a good way of moving into a felt sense of what it's like. Just to relax deep inside. Let an experience come and go without trying to control it. Even if we like certain sounds and we don't like others, we don't have to chase after them to hold on or push away. It's almost like you let them wash through you. body sitting, whatever sensations you may discover. See if you can feel your back, even if you're not pressing back against the chair. We can be so kind of forward-oriented, we don't even realize we have a back. But if you bring your attention there, then awareness will fill your whole body. And then your breath. Wherever you feel it most distinctly. The in and out movement of air at the nostrils or the rising falling movement at the chest or the abdomen. Just gently rest your mind there and see if you can feel one breath without concern for what's already gone by and without leaning forward for even the very next breath. Just the one. You can use a quiet mental notation of in and out or rising, falling to support your awareness of the breath. See if you can actually feel it. You can let sounds and images and thoughts and emotions just wash through you when they come.
without chasing after them, without pushing them away. And for all those times when you find your attention has just been gone, don't worry about it. The moment when you realize you've been distracted is actually the magic moment of the meditation because that's the moment when we have the opportunity to be really different with ourselves. Instead of judging ourselves or chastising ourselves or seeking to punish ourselves, we can gently let go with compassion, gather our energy together and begin again. Even as sounds and emotions and images are swirling, see if you can stay connected to the feeling of the breath.
and just breathe through it. Let it go. If you find yourself leaning forward, trying to get ready for the next breath before this one is even here fully, you can settle back. Now we can do some loving-kindness practice. See if as you sit there in the space that you created, certain phrases arise in your heart that you would wish most deeply for yourself and ultimately could wish for others. Phrases that are big enough and, and general enough so it's not just like for today, like, you know, may I get to the front of the Starbucks line. But more things like, may I be peaceful? Or may I be safe? Safe in the deepest sense of the word. May I be happy? And either coordinating the phrases with the breath or letting go of the awareness of the breath and just centering your mind in the repetition of the phrases. It's like you're giving yourself a blessing instead of being down on yourself and judging yourself. Like for this time, you're really offering yourself that affirmation, that quality of recognition. However, you wish to phrase them in a way that works for you. Let the words be your heartfelt expression of caring for yourself. And here, too, you just gather all your energy behind one phrase. And if your attention wanders, don't worry about it at all. That's the moment when you practice letting go and beginning again. Just bring your attention back.
And think of somebody that really inspires you, who has moved you, been really good to you. Maybe you've met them or maybe you haven't met them personally, but they've changed your life through their own existence. See if you can get an image of them. Say their name to yourself. Get a feeling for their presence. And offer phrases of loving kindness to them, like you're giving them a gift of that kind of care and recognition. May you be happy, may you be peaceful, whatever it might be. And someone you know who's really in trouble right now, really struggling in some way, bring them here. You can get an image of them again, say their name to yourself, get a feeling for their presence and offer phrases of loving kindness to them.
and then everybody here, not forgetting yourselves. May we be safe, be happy, be peaceful. And all beings everywhere, all beings, all creatures, all forms of life. This completely open expanse of connection, of recognition, that none of us is actually alone and apart. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes and relax. So do you have any questions or comments or anything you'd like to share about that experience or any experience? I think someone will bring a mic to you. Uh, how do you discriminate between the relaxation of maybe getting sleepy or the relaxation of, of real meditation? Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Well, I think actually some sleepiness is inevitable, you know, because uh, most of us find we're wound pretty tight, you know, and when we get into what you're calling the relaxation of meditation, it often is like like the fatigue that's been there all along becomes apparent, 
and and so we get kind of sleepy, but that will pass over time, you know, and they'll not every time, but <laughs> you know, for the most part, um, you come to a greater balance. Um, there are also, you know, there are many times in meditation, people have lots of ideas about meditation. Um, you know, but my experience of meditation has been that um, it's really about balance and that there are many qualities that are developed in the course of the practice that are about being calm and tranquil and peaceful and concentrated. But there are also many qualities that are about being interested and connected and learning, you know, and, and they're they're very energized qualities. And, and um, you know, we work to bring those into balance so that it's not just like sort of being in this dreamy, drifty state, you know, we don't actually know what's going on, but that feels good. You know, there's a lot of understanding and learning that comes at the same time. Uh, I, I don't feel like I've really achieved that kind of level of meditation that, that I've read about where your mind is really emptied. And what happens with me is when I meditate on something like the well-being of people and I put that person on that screen in front of me. Then I start making all these thought connections and my mind then becomes, even though I'm relaxed, it's still very active in a way because I'm making all these inner connections, thoughts. And I almost think like... I'm not doing it right or I'm not getting from it what I should because it's not an empty mind. It's not like, it's, it just isn't. <laughs> and, uh, uh-huh. you know, where do you go from there, from that state where, you know, your mind is like, oh, yeah, I'm going to put that person on the screen and then you've got 40 associations with that and on to the next one, 12 more with that one. Do you follow me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. I have kind of two different responses to that. You know, one is that um, I don't think the truth is that we experience an empty mind in the sense of blankness, that that's not really the goal. The, the quiet or the silence or the calm that we experience comes from relating differently to the thoughts that do come. First of all, we have a tendency to blame ourselves for the thoughts that come as though we could have stopped them. But when we really look, what's the truth of things? It's like saying, well, you know, I thought about it really carefully and I've decided never to fall asleep while meditating again, you know, but if the room is really, really hot or you didn't sleep the night before, you're going to fall asleep. And so one of the things we come to understand is that we're not in control of what will arise in our minds, but... We have, if we can be present instead of, you know, kind of half asleep, you know, or in a fog, if we can be present, we have every opportunity of relating to the thoughts in such a way that they don't carry us away. So, for example, to continue my Lucy um, paradigm, I was once at a a yoga conference at um, a yoga center in Massachusetts, and I was really there because my own yoga teacher, his name is John Friend, was was teaching classes, and I wanted to take the classes with him. Um, and I had been invited to to give a talk, which was going to be right after lunch. So I spent the morning doing hatha yoga with with my teacher John, and 
And we got to the um, part of the class where he said, okay, now we're going to do a wheel pose, you know, or a back bend. And for those of you who don't do Hatha yoga, the wheel is a pose where you lie on your back and you put your hands up next to your ears and somehow you're supposed to get up <laughs> into this loop, you know, into this, into this bow. And I could never do it, could never, ever, ever do it. So he said, okay, now it's time to do a back bend. I thought, you're right, you know. And I put my hands up behind my ears, couldn't get up. So we're quite good friends. So he came up to me and said, did you get up? And I said, no, I never get up. So he kind of helped me up so I could experience the posture. And I thought, oh, this is fine. This feels great. And then, and then I, you know, I was down and I was still looking at my watch thinking, well, I have to get ready to, you know, prepare my talk for the afternoon. And surely he's not going to make us do another one because he's running late, you know, and time's moving on. And, and then he said, now we're going to do another one. I thought, oh, great. You know, I can't get up. But, you know, like, I'll go through the motions. So I put my, I lie down and put my hands back by my ears. And then he said, now I want you to let go of all self-limiting ideas about yourself. And I laughed and I went up into this beautiful, perfect bow. And I was so shocked. I said out loud, oh, my God, I'm up. And then... The very next thought I had was, you'll never be able to do this again. <laughs> now, I had thought kind of casually that when I gave the talk in the afternoon, I would use that story about Lucy and Charlie Brown. So it was somewhat in my mind. So I saw that thought, you'll never be able to do this again. And I said, chill out, Lucy. And that was it. Then I could enjoy the pose. You know, so there's a lot in that moment of chill out, Lucy. It's like seeing what the thought is, not trying to pretend it's something else, not freaking out about it, not hating myself for it, and also not believing it. You know, so that's, that's an incredible skill. That's what we call mindfulness, um, is to have that clear recognition of what is and to have that kind of space. So you can have that really what it becomes choice. Do you follow that or do you not? You don't have to. Um, and that is, is really a much, uh, in a way, it's like a much deeper accomplishment than that kind of blank state of no thought, because that's not going to last anyway. You know, uh, it's a very profound realization. We're not in control of what will arise in our minds, and yet we have so much power to craft our lives, because we can have a very different relationship to those thoughts. And so that's what we really emphasize um, in the practice. Now you might, you know, uh, like when you described your experience of doing loving kindness practice in effect, you know, putting someone on the screen and wishing them well, um, you might have to focus somewhat more on letting go of the thoughts and coming back to the practice, you know, so that it's not just telling stories. Um, you know, that's how our minds are, are trained in a way is just to digress and to, um, to be distracted and to be scattered and, you know, for ourselves to be fragmented. That's how we're trained. And so that's what's going to come up. But if you can see it, you know, pretty quickly as it's happening, then you can let go and you can bring your attention back, you know, to the phrases or whatever it is, you know, that your, your practice actually is. And then 10 seconds later, you'll find your mind gone again. That's okay. You bring it back again. 
you know, and that actually becomes the discipline. And then you, you'll see real changes, you know, and especially in a practice like this is very tempting just to tell lots of stories. Um, like when I was teaching yesterday, I mentioned that, you know, I said, um, I was practicing this in 1985 intensively in uh, Rangoon in Burma. And my teacher said, okay, now think of a good friend and offer her loving kindness. So I did. And right away I started thinking, okay, what's the time difference between Rangoon and Northampton? You know, I wonder where she is. She must be out to dinner. I bet she's gone out to dinner. I wonder where she went. You know, did she go to the Greek restaurant? Did she go to the Italian restaurant? Or maybe she went to the Japanese restaurant. No, she couldn't have gone to the Japanese restaurant because I think that closed. Isn't it odd? Every restaurant that opens on that corner closes. It's so strange. It's like, I can't figure out why. It's really close to Smith College and there's really good parking, you know, so there's no reason for it to close, but every single one of them closes. Must be bad feng shui or something in that spot. You know, I was just gone, 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 you know. And that's really different than like holding an image of somebody and saying, may you be happy in a focused way, you know? So I really had to like rein myself in a little bit, you know, and just kind of actually come back to the practice. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things with me for that is in, in, there are times in my life when I'm really okay with my focus being an empty mind, but there are times when that somewhat scares me. And so the way that I do it for myself is to consider the mindfulness. What do I want my mind to be full of? And so I'll think I want to be full of gratitude or I want to be full of kindness or I want to be full of that particular emotion. And whatever emotion that is, I want to generate the purest form of that emotion so it kind of gets rid of everything else. And so it's a gentle flowing out of everything else rather than a Hitlerish, you know, can't be thinking that thought now, later, later. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, for me, that's what mm-hmm. works, is mm-hmm. thinking of the fullness aspect, because that's what I want to do. So, yeah, anyway. That's beautiful. Yeah. I've been trying to meditate on my own at home, and I just wondered, one, when you should seek a teacher and how you would find a teacher. And I live in Chicago, so I know there must be lots of teachers, but um, could you just comment on that? You know, I think it's good um, to have some kind of guidance as soon as you can, not necessarily in, you know, person-to-person form, if that doesn't work, you know, either through a book or through tapes or, or through something, just because we tend to bring so many misconceptions and so much of our past conditioning and tendency towards self-judgment to meditation practice, you know, big surprise, but we do, you know, and so um, it's not that you won't learn or you won't even have profound experiences or or uh, interesting times, you know, it's just that sometimes it's much more painful um, for reasons that, uh, you know, where we really needn't be if we had some more understanding. So, um, you know, when I first started practicing, uh, I, you know, I'd gone to India to learn how to meditate, and I um, had wandered around India for maybe three months looking for a teacher because I was I was very interested. I wasn't interested in philosophy so much. I wasn't really interested in certainly wasn't interested in becoming a Buddhist. You know, I was interested in those real practical tools 
to do something about my mind. And it took a while to find a situation that was right for me. And, and when I finally found it, it came in the form of an intensive 10-day meditation retreat where I'd never meditated for one single second when, you know, I walked in there. And it was really hard. It was really hard. But um, I had so many ideas about what practice should look like. And um, it was uh, it was a level of um, difficulty that in a large part was self-generated. You know, so for example, I thought my mind shouldn't wander. I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to be able to put my mind on the breath and keep it there for 550 breaths. And I was like so many people, you know, we tend to walk around in our lives with the feeling that we do not have enough and we are not enough and we're deficient and we're defective and we need to acquire. We need to to acquire people and objects and experiences to hold on to, to feel better about ourselves. So I brought that right into the meditation practice. You know, I have to acquire um, some kind of triumph and then I know I'm good, you know, I'm doing it right. And it sort of reminds me of this story I tell sometimes about, um, there's this fabulous store here in Manhattan, I don't know if it's in Chicago, called Kate's Puppery, where, you know, everything in the store is made of paper and it's all absolutely beautiful. It's like lampshades and notebooks and wrapping paper and all this stuff. And uh, the first time I ever went there, a friend brought me there And as we stood on the threshold of the store, she looked at me and she said, the store is going to satisfy all of your paper needs. And I looked at her and I said, I don't have any paper needs. But within two minutes of being in the store, I felt like I needed everything. I needed absolutely everything in that store to be happy. And that's how we are, you know. And and I brought that right into meditation. And... um, to my astonishment, it wasn't 550 breaths. It was two breaths or three breaths. And I was very angry about that. You know, at one point in one of my early retreats, my first retreat, um, I actually said to myself, the next time your mind wanders away from the breath, you know, you should just bang your head against the wall. And I meant it too. And fortunately for me, the lunch bell rang just then. You know, but I needed a teacher, I needed guidance to say, be gentle. You know, the point isn't to hold on to the breath. The point is to look at that moment when your mind has wandered. You know, to learn how to begin again, to learn to have some gentleness, to have some compassion for yourself. I needed that very badly right from the beginning because my habits were very strong. And so I would encourage you to find a context. You know, it could be a group, it could be a tape. Um, it could be a book or it could be a person, um, you know, to, to just help break up those preconceptions. And how you find one is really, you know, it could be anything. It could be word of mouth. Um, I also really urge everybody to have a strong feeling of um, empowerment, you know, because these things are very personal. You need to find somebody, if it's a teacher, you know, in, in person, you need to find someone you really connect to that you feel good about, and and you should keep exploring. You know, in, in doing that. Hi, um, 
sometimes when I try to meditate, I really notice and I feel embarrassed about it, but my as I'm relaxing, my body is involuntarily twitching. Mm-hmm. It's really disturbing. Um, I don't know if I'm trying to relax too much, if I need to almost maintain a certain aliveness, because I don't feel that I'm falling asleep. My mind still feels mm-hmm. active, but mm-hmm. my body is, my, you know, it's, what's wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Guess what? No, there's nothing wrong. Um, it does happen, you know, and it, uh, it happens for different reasons. You know, they say sometimes um, that kind of involuntary movement happens because it's just like an energy release that's going on. Um, sometimes it happens because um, when, you know, we're usually really kind of scattered, you know, we're all over the place. And in the act of meditating, when we start to gather our energy together, that's a lot of energy, you know, and, and so different things happen in the body as a reflection of that kind of gathering, of that concentration of energy, because that's a lot of juice, you know, that usually we're throwing all over the place um, that could be ours. And, and so that's, it's just part of the process. So it's nothing to worry about. And if you were sitting, say, in a retreat in Barry with your eyes open, you'd see a lot of people doing that. So. <laughs> just start there and then we'll come here. I'm curious um, about my meditations. I go to a place which is, I wouldn't call it an altered state. I'd call it another reality Mm -hmm. with many, many images. Mm -hmm. And I'm the observer. Mm -hmm. And it's technicolor and hallucinogenic sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like I go on a wild ride. But I, when I come out of it, I feel very calm and I know that I've had a good session. Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. just wondering, from your perspective and, and the teachings you've received and your experiences, what, what is an explanation for mm-hmm. those realities? Mm-hmm. Um, the teachings and also my experience, you know, would say that, uh, well... There, there are several skills that we're developing in the course of meditation. I think really with many, many different traditions and schools of meditation. One is concentration, you know, and that is what I was just talking about. It's taking that energy, which is usually scattered all over the place, and gathering it together. And that's a huge amount of energy, um, which could be available to us and is usually not. And as we gather it together and our minds become more stabilized in concentration, uh, concentration is considered the path of power because it's like taking all this energy and harnessing it instead of losing it. Uh, and it's considered the path of healing in a way. So, you know, just like in my hands coming together in this movement of our energy coming together, that movement toward integration, toward wholeness is, is a movement toward healing. Um, we also developed the school, the skill of mindfulness, which means we can be aware of our experience deeply without bias, without the intrusion of bias. Like, I've always been afraid of this, so this has got to be a bad thing. Or, you know, I've got to hold on to this and, and make it never change. Or, oh, no, I can't admit I feel this. Or, you know, there are all kinds of ways that um, we tend to react to what's going on instead of just opening to it. 
And so mindfulness teaches us how we can open to all of our experience. Um, and that's really important and powerful because, uh, you know, here too, think about how much energy we expend trying to avoid certain things or pretend they're not there or, you know, cover them over. And um, we don't even get to know what they are. I often think, um, I was thinking this during some of the presentations today, that in our country at this time, like when my book Faith came out and I was traveling around all over the place, I was thinking after a while, you know, maybe one of our biggest problems is that we don't know how to just be afraid. You know, like to sit there and accommodate a feeling of fear with mindfulness and love. And instead, we will do anything to avoid it. And and some of the things we do to avoid the feeling are so destructive. You know, they're so self-destructive or other destructive. Because um, we don't know how to just be with what's going on. And so mindfulness teaches us how to be with. And and then, of course, we develop skills like loving kindness and compassion and so on, relating to ourselves and to others in a very different way. So all of that's happening in the practice. And what you describe is traditionally considered um, to come from a great depth of concentration. You know, that when that energy comes together in that way, we, we have other levels of experience available to us that are just not available to us when we're more on the surface and our energy is, is more scattered. And so um, that's, you know, the tradition would say, the Buddhist tradition would say that's primarily what that is. That's all the images and the visions and the technicolor and the, you know, all of that is coming from the power of concentration. So it's great. Um, but <laughs> uh, of all those different skills concentration and mindfulness and loving kindness and compassion, concentration is considered to be the most fragile because it's the most externally dependent. You know, like we all know it's easier to concentrate in a quiet place than in a noisy place. But mindfulness can go anywhere. That is to say we can develop, and so can love. You know, we can develop an ability to be aware of our experience openly with presence, um, with understanding, with compassion, no matter what that experience is. And then we're free. You know, it's wonderful. It's very powerful and wonderful to experience strong concentration. But if we start to depend on it, then we start to resent everything that comes up that might uh, take us away from that concentration. So, for example, I often teach here in New York City... Um, a series of classes. And one year I was teaching down in Tribeca in this beautiful uh, Tibetan center. And uh, you, could, you can't really, um, you can't enter the room that is actually the Tibetan temple through going through the front entryway of the building. You have to go all the way around behind the building, down this alleyway, and up this separate set of stairs to get to the room that's the Tibetan temple. So... That's what we all did, and it was the first night of a six-week series of classes. So I started, just like I started here, with the recommendation that we sit and listen to sound. And that instant, some guy came into the alleyway and he started screaming obscenities. You know, and he'd call out somebody's name and a whole long list of obscenities, and someone else's name and a whole long list of obscenities. And I was sitting there thinking... How many people does he know? You know, it was just like it went on and on and on. 
And of course, everyone was laughing hysterically. Um, you know, and then we sat, and then I rang the bell at the end of the sitting, and I said, you know, I give that instruction in Barry, Massachusetts, and you hear the sound of little bird chirping things, and the wind rustling through the trees, and I give that instruction in Tribeca, and you don't know what's going to happen. But really, we never know what's going to happen. You know, we could be in a very placid, concentrated state, and something happens outside, and all of a sudden our concentration is disrupted. You know, so we, we, we sort of recommend appreciating it deeply, but not getting hooked on it, because it could well change. And you can actually have very deep meditation listening to that sound, you know, noticing all your reactions, uh, maybe forgiving yourself for your reactions, forgiving him for his, you know, state, whatever it was, uh, paying careful attention, you know, even though you won't have much concentration. Yeah. Hello. Um, uh, I have a, a couple questions. Um, one is, I, I had an experience um, while doing yoga recently that was interesting and just sort of um, relates to that woman's comment back there. Um, and that is that uh, at a certain point, I, I had a lot of, um, you know, Lucy voices happening and a lot of anxiety and anger and uh, things um, coming up. And... And um, it was just sort of the first time that I really was not able to st- stop them. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I just um, said to myself, well, thank goodness this is coming out of mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so since then, it's been a great kind of uh, tool to recognize that uh, voice or, you know, those feelings and... And so I'll I'll just say thank goodness this is coming out you know mm-hmm. keep coming out and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, go mm-hmm. and um, does it go yeah um, but I also sort of feel like you know I need to watch a balance right because I I don't want to like perpetuate this this sort of you know focus on on um, that I want to keep returning to my center of my breath and all of that so. I just, um, I don't know, I just thought I would share that and see what you had to say about that. And um, my second question is also about uh, teacher. I just find that it is so different to meditate with a teacher or a, a leader, a facilitator, than it is to be by myself in my mm-hmm. home. It's like mm-hmm. they're not even the same thing. And so it's it's really challenging and frustrating sometimes to try to do that at home, and I wondered if you had any tips. Mm-hmm. Do you live in New York? Yes. Um, I know New York better than Chicago. <laughs> I mean, in terms of the first, I think you did beautifully, you know. Um, I also used to say to myself, uh, this is something coming out of me, because certainly my first meditation teacher is a man named Goenka, worked on what we call a purification model, where he believed very strongly and taught that as we go deeper, um, a lot of these things will arise, you know, and present themselves. And it is almost like a purging process. Uh, 
that you, you know might come out in your dreams, it might come out in your meditation session, it could come out in your yoga session, certainly, where your body's in movement, your energy is, you know, releasing. Um, these, it's good, you know, that it comes to the surface. It's not bad. How you relate to it is everything, you know, and so um, you can say go with a kind of gentleness, like I don't need to go down that road. Uh, or you could say it with a kind of harshness, like that's more afraid, you know, like I've got to make this go away. And that's for you to feel, you know, where you're coming from. I would suspect if it does go away, then you are saying it with some gentleness. You know, otherwise it wouldn't go away. It would kind of, you know, hit you. Um, but that's that's really key. You know, I think we don't appreciate how powerful it is to know what we're feeling and to know the kinds of thoughts that are being generated in our minds. But, you know, there's a lot that happens in our own lives and in the life of the world that's really about being disconnected and not, not being aware and not knowing. And, and that's really, really difficult. And I'd read somewhere about some study that was done once where all these people were um, hooked up to the machines that measure everything, you know, like blood pressure and uh, temperature and sweating and all the stuff. And and then, I don't know, I don't remember exactly what happened next, if they were shown uh, images or read stories or something happened to provoke emotion. And some large percentage of the people apparently said um, that they weren't feeling anything even though their blood pressure was going up and they were sweating and, you know, by all external measures, they were feeling something, but they didn't know what they were feeling. They were cut off from it. And interestingly enough, this is considered a study in empathy because when we can't feel our own feelings, especially our own painful feelings, we can't intuit the painful feelings of somebody else. And this is also, um, has very big implications for for morality, you know, and how we behave in this world, because uh, from many points of view, the best kind of morality is not like a studied morality. It's knowing deep inside how it feels, you know, to be lied to or to be taken advantage of or to be hurt in some way, and you just don't want to do that to someone else because you know what it feels like. Um, you know, and and that's better than kind of having to give ourselves a lecture, you know, uh, saying, no, I shouldn't do that. I really want to, but I shouldn't, you know. And, and uh, you know, I think in many studies of abusers as well, it comes out, you know, there's there's an ability to abuse because you don't get a sense that this person is a person with feelings. You know, that person is an object at that point. And so it's it's very, very important to be able to connect to what we're feeling, um, even when what we're feeling is very painful. So that's a, it's always a good thing. And you have the capacity to relate to those feelings um, in a different way, you know, instead of, like, taking them so to heart and saying, I'm such a horrible person, and I always have been, and I always will be, and, you know, and kind of that is to say, okay, you know, let it go. Just let it go. So that's really fantastic. And, and in terms of the tips, I mean, it, it really depends on what works for you. You know, if you live in New York, um, there are tremendous resources. There are lots of meditation groups. There are lots of teachers. Um, 
you know, uh, you can explore different avenues. You probably don't want to sit with a group every day, you know, because that's for busy. That makes for a busy life, um, you know. But if once a week or something like that, you were connecting with a group, that would really help. Um, it helps uh, if you're sitting at home to to find the ways that um, will support you in some way. It might be, you know, reading before you begin, or it might be listening to some music before you begin, or it could be having a, a sense of dedication before you begin. You know, like this practice is not for myself alone, but is really for the sake of, of myself and the world. You know, something like that. Um, it can be really simple and practical. Things like people often say, well, how do I know how much time has elapsed? You know, and I say, well, set an alarm. <laughs> You know, it, it can be as simple as that, so that you don't drive yourself insane by looking at your watch every 10 seconds. You know, like, what time is it? How much time has gone by? Um, you know, sit, if it helps you, sit the same time every day. Um, I have a, a friend, this colleague, um, Joseph Goldstein, who said that he once took a resolve not to go to sleep at night until he'd at least gotten into the meditation posture. You know, so if you realize, okay, it's not going to be 45 minutes today. It's not even going to be two minutes today. It's just going to be one minute today. At least you do that. You know, so it's, it's just a, a variety of things like that. Mm-hmm. And come find me in New York. Yeah, last question. A less experiential question. Do you think, from having traveled around the, the Buddhist world, that... Buddhism has a long way to go in terms of uh, including women at, at, um, as equals in the Buddhist uh, tradition. Um, I think that's another yes and no. Um, I think uh, even the Dalai Lama actually makes a, a differentiation between the Buddhist teaching and kind of like the institutional structure of Buddhism. I think in terms of the Buddhist teaching, no, there's nowhere it needs to go. You know, I never felt as a woman that I had less access um, to really good teachers, to the same teachings, um, to incredible guidance, to, you know, complete inclusion, which is what I looked for, not only as a, a woman, but as a person who had felt excluded my whole early life. Um, you know, I really felt excluded from the good things of life. And, and I needed the tradition to, to be open in that way, and it was. In terms of the structure of Buddhism, you know, institutional Buddhism, yeah, there's a ways to go. Um, you know, I never became a nun, and so I was kind of spared the, you know, second or third class citizenship in the monastic society that nuns uh, often endure, though not always. Um, depends on where you are. And uh, I think it's an interesting moment in time historically for, for Buddhism, you know, as a, as a structure encountering Western women. <laughs> so, okay, thank you. Our time is up. This has been a presentation of Omega Institute for Holistic Studies. 
visit us online at eomega.org.